Good afternoon. Let me ask you a question. How much of your life, concretely, like day to day, how much of your life would change if God didn't exist? It may seem like a weird question, bizarre one, maybe. You don't know how to how to answer it. The whole thing, maybe. Or maybe it would seem like a lot of your day-to-day, you would do the same things, maybe. You would think the same way. You would act in a very similar manner. Think about that question. What would really change if God didn't exist? Or if we just continue to push God further and further outside of, of what we think we need him for. You know, sometimes it's called the God of the gaps. We have a view that uh, the more that we can explain and the more that we can understand on our own human reason, on our own terms, the less we need God. And so if we can explain more and more about the universe about the, the atomic truths and, and all of these things, whatever they may be, thanks for laughing, we seem to need God less and less. Is that how we act? Is that how we walk through life? If we hit an intense misery or intense uh, thing that we can't understand, that's where we need God. But more and more of our life becomes understandable without him. Something I want to come back to, but we have a psalm here that that is really an amazing psalm, and it's very clearly broken up into two main sections. The first section, the psalmist is confessing the way that he looks on the world, the way that he would even act, as if God is is not there, as if his, his promises aren't true, he's not living up to who he apparently said he was. And then there's a change. There's a change and he remembers who God is. That's what we're going to look at in Psalm 73. So let's pray for God's Spirit to lead us. Lord, we praise you for the grace that we have been able to hear and experience already in this service, that we can know that we are forgiven and yet... uh, You desire that to be our starting point. You desire that to be our foundation. And uh, we ask that you would speak to us now, that you would lead us uh, according to your word and help us to see just what it means to say that we can enter into your presence and and everything changes. Pray for wisdom. Pray for soft hearts to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, as I said, it's very clear uh, that there's two sections here, the first 16 or so verses. He's confessing all the things that he sees that are around him that seem to be, uh, they're either disturbing him or they are leading him to doubt God. So it starts out, uh, it starts out with sort of an intro, this is who God is. But as for me, I almost totally fell away from this. I stumbled, he says, my steps had nearly slipped. And then he talks about all the ways that he had seen the prosperity of the wicked, he calls it. 
He sees the arrogance and how they are. I liked how, how Rachel gave some intimations, how they're fat and sleek, or how they're uh, getting all of these riches at the, um, on the backs of people that they don't care about. It seems like they are succeeding. They have no pangs until death. They're not in trouble like the rest of us. They are not stricken. And so they are proud and arrogant. And they even speak against God. So the psalmist is going into quite a bit of detail into what these folks' lives were like, what he perceives to be seen that's going on in their life, how they are, there's sort of this horizontal injustice and vertical injustice happening. He's coming to God and he's confessing all of what's going on with all this injustice. This is not right. But it seems like the injustice is winning. The horizontal being the person to person, how they're not caring for each other, how they're uh, gaining wealth in pride and violence, and then how they also speak to God in such proud ways. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the most? Surely God doesn't know or care. And he's saying this in a, in a way that is so incredibly honest. And I think this should be one of the first things that strikes us, that this is the way that he's coming to God and praying. He's describing what he sees around him. That's pretty amazing. That he brings all of this to God. Even these things and these feelings that he will later say are sinful and foolish. He's saying them to God. So notice, first off, the, the boldness that he has to bring everything to God. And what prevents us from that? So maybe we, surely we can identify in some way with what he's saying in this first half. Why is all of their all of this success seem to be happening to those who don't deserve it. It, it. it seems to be so obvious in our world, and it seems to be so insurmountable in its proof that God is really not as big or powerful or true as we thought. So he, he says it, but it also, he says it in a way that makes a pretty good case, doesn't he? seems to be making a pretty good case. Remember, this is in the presence of God. That he's, he's saying this to God about these other people. So ask yourself first, what is it about uh, your perception of God or your, uh, the nature of your prayer life that prevents you from doing something similar to this? Is it hard to come to God with these sorts of feelings or these sorts of perceptions, because it seems unholy, unbecoming of prayer. We don't see that here or anywhere else in the Psalms. He brings it to him. And we should bring it to him most especially because we have something even better than, than what the psalmist has. We can say it in Christ. As a, as a brief aside, I just want to remind us that all of Scripture is meant to point us to Christ. The Psalms especially are not only pointing us to Christ, they are in a, in a very important way the, the prayer book of Jesus. They're meant to be read as if 
Jesus is saying that in some way. Now you should ask, but how could he be saying things that are sinful? How could he be saying things that are foolish? How could he, like other psalms do, how could he confess sins? And how can we say these things in him for confessing sin? Well, that's the, the nature, the profundity of our unity with him by faith, is that he takes on our sin to such a degree that when we confess our sins, we're doing that in him. Because the only way that we can come to God and expect forgiveness is that we're doing it in Christ. We're doing it in Christ. And that he's interceding on our behalf. He's saying these prayers on our behalf, in our place. It's why on the cross he can say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't deserve that. He's saying that for us. And so if anything, we should have more courage and more boldness to come to God in this way. And you see how it's not sugar-coated. He doesn't have a, a, a specific, cleaner, you know, language for prayer. He says, God, look at all this terrible stuff that's happening. Where are you? Why are you not doing anything? They're even blaspheming you. So, if we can say it in Jesus, we're guaranteed that we're heard. We don't have to be afraid of the punishment that we're going to receive because Jesus received that punishment. Shouldn't that make us bolder than the psalmist? The confession that we just went through, that we do every week. We don't have to only say the small things. We should have this courage to dig deeply into our own sin and our own sense of injustice in the world, if you will, of evil in the world. Not to the point of, of complaining because it's the first half. You're going to see how these two halves go together very can't have, can't stop here, right? You can't have one without the other. But this part makes the second part very important. And the second part makes the first part, it gives us the freedom to go deep. But he's being honest, and he then, of course, confesses his envy of them. Which, hopefully, we can be honest enough to say, yeah, we too envy that. Who doesn't envy those who have more money than they know what to do with? Who doesn't envy those who who seem to get all the fame and success? If you're honest with yourself, you don't have any envy of that. You can confess that to God. Just because you're bringing it to God doesn't mean you're saying it's okay. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of, of this this whole thing that we call church, this whole thing that we call the gospel, is that you, how else can you come without coming in your sin? If you don't come in your sin, you're never going to come to Christ. So he's confessing the envy that he had. He's confessing the fact that he's getting pretty close to just jumping all in with them. Why not join them? So we want to ask ourselves, are we close to that ourselves? Are we close to that also? Don't be afraid to ask the hard questions. It's not something that God is going to be caught off guard 
Sometimes, I know some people come from a background where they're told, don't ask questions, don't doubt, just trust it. Just believe it no matter what. Surely that comes out of a, I mean, I'm sure there's good intentions to that, but a lot of times it can come out of a fear and an insecurity that we're not going to be able to handle these questions. But God, surely God can. He can handle them. Scripture is, is true. And it's deep, and it's going to be able to, to handle these sorts of questions. Sometimes, maybe if we're feeling this, this sort of envy, uh, it's kind of like we're hedging our bets, and so we, we want to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and we, we obviously envy these things, and we sort of kind of pursue that sort of success. But we don't go overboard. Even though overboard is wrong, and so we stay somewhat in the church and then we can confess but that's not where we're led here and so the question is what does he do with this and if you notice the transition it's interesting in 15 he says if I had said well speak thus I would have betrayed the generation of your children it seems like his sense of being a part of a community actually holds him back he's part of this covenant community and it holds him back from just jumping in full tilt with the the success of the wicked that he sees around him. And as it holds him back, 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And if you think about that, is anybody a little bit let down with that as the, or maybe not let down, maybe... Surprised? Are we surprised that at the end of the day, it's it's God that matters? It's God that makes the difference? It's God himself that, that changes everything? It seems kind of simple, but I don't think that should surprise us. It's what we should expect. One... One preacher puts it this way. Have you ever realized who God is? Everything in connection with the religion, and I would, I would add everything else, is about him. Christ came into the world and died. Why? To bring us to God. It's all about God. It's not some comfortable feeling that you and I have to strive for. It's not having your body healed or a thousand and one other things. The whole object of Christ and his death upon the cross, his burial, his resurrection, is to bring us to God. And the ultimate test of our profession of the Christian faith is our thoughts about God, our attitude in his presence, our reverence and godly fear because of our God is a consuming fire. That, that's appropriate. That should be the case if God really is God. If we're really to let God be God, then we need to ask ourselves, how often is it that we live and think and act like practical atheists? Like we may say and, and even really genuinely believe certain things, but in the day-to-day stuff, it doesn't actually matter that much. It doesn't seem to change the way that our hearts envy other things. It doesn't seem to change much at all. But it's as if he's given a whole new lens on life, a whole new 
when he comes into the sanctuary of God, when he comes into the presence of God. And until we take account of God, in, it's not reality. It's not the truth. And to think about it in such simple terms, hopefully, should strike us. That if we try to set God to the side and then do something or think about something, you're, you're automatically starting from the wrong What should we expect? Think about that image of being a new lens. It's one that can get um, used pretty often, but I think it's very helpful. My wife um, needed glasses at a very young age, but they didn't get them for her until a couple years later. And she tells the story of coming home from the eye doctor and just being amazed. Look at the colors of the leaves. She could actually see. She could see the whole world in a whole new way. That's part of what we see here. He gets a whole new lens on the supposed successful in the world, the famous, those who were wealthy. He gets a whole new lens on them. The new lens is that, of course, their pride and their arrogance is totally misplaced. Of course, God is going to judge them. Of course, God is near. Of course, they have no reason to hope that God will not strike them down the next day. And they'll be like the rich fool in the Gospels who stored up all this money in the barns only to be called to account the next day. The obvious truth, what what seemed to be obvious before becomes the obvious truth having met God. It gets turned totally upside down. The obvious truth before seemed to be, well, they're obviously winning, they're succeeding, and they're gaining what everyone really wants. But when God's in the picture, it's the opposite. And their success actually becomes a curse. And you get part of that in that James passage, too. That their success actually becomes a curse. Think about that. That it it actually can blind them to the very thing that they need. Now, it's, it's probably important, me, important for me to mention, this is not inherent to the wealthy. This is not inherent to the rich. There are far more warnings to the rich than the poor in Scripture because it's a lot easier to think you don't need God when you're wealthy. That doesn't mean it's, there's some inherent thing about it. But do you see the, the lens totally turns his perspective on life upside down. The one thing that you could be after, the thing that you think is your salvation, the most important thing in your life, could be the very curse of God if he were to give it to you. It could actually be God giving you over to your desires apart from Is there something like that in your life? That it, that it, in a sense, numbs us. It becomes a sort of vaccine for our need for God. Is there something like that in your life? It can often be material things. It can often be education. It can often be our reputation. It can often be anything. You make anything into an idol, don't you? thing we think we need is numbing us to our deeper need. 
thing that, the other thing that gets turned upside down is his envy. He says, how silly was I when I was envious of these people. Later on in the psalm. So after admitting, truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. Of course, if they're proud, if they're violent, if they think they have no need of God, of course they are They are on the road to destruction. And then he talks about the same way uh, about his envy. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. The envy that seemed so natural and obvious for the success or whatever it may be that we were obvious, that we were envying now seems absolutely foolish, absolutely silly. There's no reason for us to have it. What is that for us? Maybe that's FOMO, right? We're afraid of missing out on something. Maybe it's simply the, the jealousy of the rich and famous. Whatever it is that seems to make God irrelevant. It's funny, we have this phrase, the grass is always greener. And that's, that's one of those cliches that is actually pretty true. And everyone kind of knows it's true. But then we don't really learn or act as if it's true. If there's not actually something to envy after, if we're really to think about it in the context of God and the reality of God. But it's not just the reality of God. He gets into more detail in the the beautiful ways that he ends the psalm because he focuses on who God is. God is faithful here. God is not going to leave him. He will continually be with him. He's not going to be like the riches. He's not going to be like all the other things that we may be pursuing. He's steadfast. He's consistent, like like we thanked him for earlier. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. He's not a God that's just present. He's guiding us according to what we were made for. God is faithful. He is our guidance. He is our strength. Did you hear the beautiful, uh, my flesh and my heart may fall, may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know what's amazing about this turn is that he's focusing on who God is, saying he's faithful, he guides him, he's always present, he's his strength. It doesn't seem as if any of his circumstances have changed. Isn't that amazing? The first 15 verses, he's talking all about the things he had reason to to envy and covet. And all of these um, abuses and successes. And we get no hint that any of that has changed. That has to be one of the major take-homes of this psalm. The thing that changed is that God is in his life now. Is that God is in his life. It's not that he moved up a little bit closer to be successful or a little bit closer to gain fame. He simply has a new lens on life. The consequences of what's happening, the circumstances, he doesn't even seem to be asking that they would change. So not only do we get, not get a hint that they haven't changed, he doesn't even pray later that they would change. So the second half 
It's not a prayer of supplication. He's not asking for things to, to change. It's really a prayer of, of profession, of what he now sees as true. Because before he thought certain things were true, now he says, but I know this is true, that you are my rock, that you are my strength, that you're the only one I need. So some people have a hard time categorizing this psalm. Is it a thanksgiving psalm? Is it a wisdom psalm? What is it? It's not, is it a confession psalm? He doesn't end in, in supplicating God and crying out to God to change what's going on. We have that in other psalms, but we don't have it here. It's very, very striking. He simply starts saying things that are true. Do you do that to yourself? Do you do that to, to other people as you're trying to encourage them? What do I know at the end of the day is true regardless of what's happening? Do I know that Jesus has been raised from the dead? God, God doesn't have to prove himself to us, but he has. And he raised Jesus from the dead. And he has said, I will be this. I will be this. What this psalmist has said, I will be this for you. I will be your rock. I will be the strength when you fail. This is who God promises to be in Christ. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. This is a good section to memorize, those two verses. Um, that reflect on God's worthiness. This is a great tactic in prayer, too. To simply be professing and confessing what is true. Who is God? And look at this transformation that all has come from simply a new lens or a new perspective. He went from wanting and desiring, and it seems like he's kind of obsessing over all of these other things that people have and all the success they have. God enters his life. He enters the sanctuary of God. And now he says, all I desire is you. All I desire is you. Those desires that I had for all those other things, those were foolish. Those were ignorant of what is true. It's really amazing. He is the one that if we only have him, we have everything. We only have him and nothing else. We have everything. Maybe you may be wondering. uh, One, maybe two questions. Uh, One, why is this true? Why should we want this? How, How could he be the one thing that I would desire? How could that be true? And how can we get there? Well, the reason that it's true is, one example is in Colossians 1, Another example is what I mentioned. Jesus has been raised from the dead. But this is who Jesus Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's who God is. That's who Jesus is. It's all meant to be. 
And so if we start looking and, and desiring after other things besides that, we're working against the fabric of the universe. We're working against how God has made us. So he's not settling for something less. This is not you know, like a fallback card that he just keeps in his back pocket. He's after the, the greatest thing he can be after. His desire is not being squashed. He's not saying, don't look after those things. You, you're too passionate. You care too much. He's saying, no, those, those things are weak. Those things aren't worth being so passionate about. Be most passionate about the one thing that you know is worth that passion. Well, how do we get to that point? Unfortunately, I don't have a magic bullet to give you. It's probably things that you already know. Meditate on this psalm. Read it over and over. Try to let it seep down deep into your soul. Come to God in imitating this psalm. Come to God with all of your all of your perceptions. I remember in, in a major decision in my life before I, was, I went to grad school, I could not fully, openly pray to God about the decision to come to Yale. It was like I was trying to hide it from him. I didn't want to open it up. Because I secretly knew that if I really opened it up, he probably wouldn't affirm it, at least in the way I wanted him to. We don't have to fear that. We don't have to keep it sort of closed and locked. Because he's the one that it's all made for. We already know it's going to be for our good. So imitate him in that. Enter his presence in corporate worship. Expect the suffering and the temptation to envy others. Notice, this, I mean, this is such an amazing psalm on so many levels. This is typical. This is, this is what it means to be a part of the people of God. This is right out of the Psalms. The Bible is so real. This should be, it shouldn't surprise us. So that means that we shouldn't despair and get all depressed when we find ourselves envying other things. We should say, oh, oh yeah. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, and there's ways to deal with it. It's so empowering, I think, when we look at it that way, that those sorts of feelings or desires aren't going to catch us off guard. And there's, I'm sure, many, many other things uh, that we could do to try to get to this point. But just to wrap up, as we, as we come to the Lord's Supper, there's a lot of different ways to think about the Lord's Supper. Um, and I would encourage you to, to meditate on its truth and, and try to experience it in a deeper way. But if we come to the Lord's Supper confessing this in our heart, God is, you notice how much God is trying to become our main reality if we do that. What I mean is, He's, he's, he's speaking to us through His Word. He's given us this supper with the, such tangible senses that we can feel and taste his goodness 
He has told us to do this. Jesus has told us to do this 2,000 years ago, and it's been passed down through his living body. God is trying to become, in our minds, the reality that he is. And we always try to explain him away. We forget that he's there. Our perceptions lie to us and say, no, this is real success. Let this become more and more the cry of your heart. Let me just read this final passage again as we come to the table. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Emphasize the you. I'm continually with you, the Lord God of the universe. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works.